Welcome everyone to the March Finance Committee meeting of the Alameda Health System Board of Trustees. We will start our meeting with a roll call. I'm just a Oh, sorry. No, it's all right. I was just going to say before we uh, get in too deep, uh, I want to alert everyone that Trustee Banerjee is no longer going to be a member of this committee. Uh, and Trustee Blue has stepped up in her position. So this will be the first meeting Trustee Blue attends as a full committee member. And our board president is attending in ex officio status. He is aware and is also in agreement of this change. Thank you so much, board clerk. We're ready for the roll call now. Excellent. Trustee Blue. Present. Thank you. Trustee Esteen. Present. Trustee Fox. Present. Trustee Splendorio. Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. All right. Uh, the first action of the committee, the first part of the agenda tonight is to approve our past committee minutes. Does anyone have any amendments they'd like to make or corrections to the February minutes? Hearing no objections, may we please have a roll call vote? In a motion first. May we please have a motion? I'll so move. Thank you. Second. Excellent. Moved by Splendorio, seconded by Fox. Um, Trustee Blue. Uh, aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. And Trustee Splendorio. Yes. Thank you. Motion passes. Beautiful. We'll move into the second part of our agenda, item B1, our CFO report. Yes, hi, uh, and good evening, trustees. Mark Fratsky here. I'm going to introduce Dr. Babera. Um, up to present tonight is um, one of our business units, and it's ambulatory. And Dr. Babera is the chief administrative officer, as you know, over that area. So she will be not only presenting her report, but any of her dashboards she would like to present. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Dr. Babera, for presenting. Thank you, Mark, so much. Um, I have to apologize. There are two children in the background. So if you hear little voices, please excuse me. Um, so I'm hoping I don't have slides to present today because I think similar to our previous reports, I've been trying to stick with the tradition of, you know, putting most of it in my report and answering questions. Would it be helpful if as I'm presenting, I pull up the written report that was submitted? Uh, you know, at your discretion, I think if you pull up the written report uh, and people have questions, we can definitely take a look, but not mandatory. Okay, that sounds great. So maybe I will, let me just pull that up. I'm sorry, I did not realize I was going first, which I should have known. Well, while you're looking for the report, I will uh, just ask that our committee take a moment to thank you for your service. We were notified by our CEO that you are uh, moving on into state level service now. And we thank you for the work that you've been doing with AHS for all these years and congratulate you on your new endeavors. Thank you so much. Um, still pulling up the report with a slow internet connection. Um, 
But definitely, you know, would like to say this is unfortunately my last time presenting to this committee. And it's just been a pleasure. As most of the people who are on this call know, AHS has been the only place that I have worked um, in my sort of post-residency training career um, and is a place that I'm always going to consider home for the rest of my career. And I'm hoping that at the state level, I can continue um, to really advance all of the principles that this system has learned me. And just, um, I know that we have a lot of challenges ahead of us, but I know that this organization will continue to live up to those challenges. And I'm hoping that I can support it from the other side. Okay. We will hold you to it. <laughs> And now you know someone to complain to when something isn't working in Medi-Cal, so. <laughs> Great. Um, so, you know, I won't get into the main detail, but we'll stop on sort of some of the graphics and the slides. And then I welcome all of the trustees to interrupt me along the way so that I can answer questions for you. Um, so as we've agreed upon in previous meetings, I'll be covering the finances, but also just some of the other strategy and quality elements of the ambulatory SBU since we moved this report out of QPSC. Um, so I think we covered this at our last meeting, but ambulatory is using a lean A3 matrix approach to do all of our strategic planning. Um, so this is our matrix that is guiding all of our initiatives for fiscal year 21. Some of them are multi-year, so you'll see them carry into fiscal year 22. Um, I think one of just the big ones is we did add equity as a pillar for our SBU. I know it's not necessarily um, yet incorporated into the True North metric dashboard, it's an area of growth and development for us, but we are trying to take an equity lens to every single initiative that we launch um, and are learning a lot along the way. In terms of sustainability, as uh, mentioned under my last report three months ago, you know, I think that COVID-19 public health provisions um, and emergency status are really still in our favor in ambulatory because it allows us to receive full reimbursement for all telephone and video visits done um, throughout all of our clinics. And so excluding IOP, uh, which I'll get to in a few minutes, in January, our ambulatory budget was 3% above budget of visit volume um, for that month, and then 5% above budget year to date. Um, some of you may see fluctuations in the month to month reports in terms of percentage telehealth and what the visit volumes are. A lot of those are really driven by what is happening in our public health emergency. So we have seen that you know when we had our peak COVID-19 surges, not surprisingly, people were really scared to come in and get care, and we were doing you know anywhere from 80 to 90 percent telehealth. When the COVID surges have died down and things, you know, we don't have a shelter uh, in place order at the state level or people feel more comfortable, a lot of our visit volume has returned to in-person, you know, anywhere between 50 to 80%, depending on the service line, um, as patients are coming in to get care that they didn't feel comfortable coming to get before. So, you know, where that mix between virtual and in-person care lands when we're not in a pandemic, I think remains to be seen. But if you see fluctuations, it's usually driven by what is happening with COVID outside of our four walls. Um, and then with IOP, just a footnote is that we, you know, the, the current IOP volumes are markedly below budget at both sites. Um, in collaboration with the staff, a number of errors have been identified. And so we believe that some of the registration workflows and EPIC-related workflows are resulting in undercounting of those visit volumes. So we're working very closely with our partners in finance to validate the data, fix those reports. So I'm hoping by the next report, we actually have accurate data to report out about both of our IOP programs at Fairmont and Highland. 
Um, and then I have received questions in the past, so just want to flag for the trustees that DHCS has released um, a memo that signals what their future state proposal is. They are taking public comments on that memo right now, um, but it looks like their intention is that they will maintain reimbursement for video visits at a higher rate, similar to what has been happening in the pandemic, but they are looking to phase out um, full payment for telephone visits. It looks like telephone visits may continue at a reduced rate or in certain circumstances, but not um, at the state that we have been. And in current state, uh, almost all of our virtual care is telephone, not video. We have some great pilots going with video, but um, not surprisingly, you know, home internet access and video capability are definitely a limitation for our patient population in a way that telephone is not. Um, so we will continue to try to expand video, but are looking at what this um, new pay reimbursement scheme, if made permanent, would mean for our ambulatory operations. Doctor, can I ask a... That seems nonsensical. I mean, from a social justice perspective, I mean, your population is less likely to have broadband and more likely to have a cell phone, which may equal the same. I mean, may equal the same, but that's nonsensical. Um, I, there is a public comment period, which I encourage people to take advantage of. And I know that um, CAPH has also been advocating, you know, I will say from a clinical perspective, there is a difference between phone and video, which should not be surprising, right? If you can see your patient, there are clinical assessments you can make about your patients um, that you can't do over a telephone. So I wholeheartedly agree that video and in-person care will give you more clinical information and be able enable you to take care of the patient more comprehensively. Um, that being said, yes, there are absolutely clear limitations to our patients' access to internet, to video capability. Um, the digital divide is real. Um, and I hope that there are efforts that we can take to help bridge that digital divide for our patients. And um, I think I've mentioned it at previous meetings, but Dr. Jenny Cohen, who is our associate ambulatory CMIO, um, got a huge grant to help address this digital divide. So we do have a pilot tech advocates program here at Alameda Health System and Ambulatory who partner with our patients to get them signed up for MyChart, get them set up for video capability, source low-cost you know, solutions to broadband and other barriers that they're facing. So I'm excited through the course of the grant to see if we can find a best practice model there um, so that our patients, you know, a lack of digital access affects them in a lot of ways beyond just their health care. So that is clearly the long-term solution. But I agree, there are clear disparities um, in what our patients have access to. So if I can just add as a suggestion, do you know who Sunny McPeak is? No. Sunny uh, is the CEO of the California, what is that, Emerging Technology Fund. But she was she was the, the internet czar for Governor Brown, second Governor Brown, for those old enough. Um, you you may want to bring that to her attention. Um, she's she is uh, speaks quite a bit on the digital divide, and and this may be a, another uh, arrow for her to advocate. And if you want, I can send over um, her contact information. That would be most appreciated. I can definitely make sure it gets the right members of our team. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so these are just the visit volumes that I was referencing when I was talking through the earlier part of the presentation. So you will see, you know, very 
robust visit volumes performing above target in both primary care and specialty care. Also, it should not be surprising, um, we have a very high show rate for our telehealth visits because it's really easy to find patients when you're calling them. Um, in the months where we have a higher rate of in-person visits, we do return closer to our um, average no-show rates, which hover around 20%. So the month-to-month -month fluctuation of no-show rates also um, changes based off of how much telehealth we're doing versus in-person care. And then if you look at the flex budget below, these are sort of our actual expenses that we are monitoring um, year to date. And we are meeting our budget volume, as you will see um, in the detailed slide below. And then we also have a monthly um, revenue cycle meeting with all of our clinic managers who manage all the operations. And so these are some of the metrics that we are tracking right now. So on a monthly basis, we review the number of registration errors, encounters that are missing charges so that we can make sure that all of our outpatient encounters are tracked and closed in a timely basis and not resulting in delayed claims. Um, we also look at sort of our flex budget and expense management so that we can see what is our cost per visit and what are the productive hours per visit and then flex up and flex down as we are able to um, to make sure that we are managing appropriately as well as revenue improvement. So we are working with our finance partners to track the actual payments we get per visit, not just charges, as well as RVU per clinic visit, um, and are still validating some of those numbers. But between these various metrics, I think for each of our clinics, we're starting to get a very comprehensive picture of where the opportunities are. And then this is our fiscal dashboard um, that I referenced above. So you'll see our registration errors are well within our target. Um, missing charges did rise a little bit in January. So we are working on getting back down to target of 12% and have identified a few areas that are outliers, um, largely because of delayed documentation. So we're very working very closely with our medical directors and our chiefs and chairs to make sure that all of the providers are completing documentation in a timely manner so that we're not missing any charges on those encounters. Um, but I will say for the rest of the year, that has been mostly at target. And then our labor productivity and revenue expenses are also at target. And the other numbers, as I mentioned, we're still validating the RVUs. Those will be added once validated. Question. Um, do, does, this, does the EPIC system give us the ability to track registration errors by uh, registration clerk? Yes, actually, um, and I can get you more information off that offline, but we do, uh, Rafael Vaccarano, who is our Director of Patient Access and oversees all of our registration clerk, I believe all of these dashboards can be drilled down um, to the user levels so that targeted feedback can be provided. Okay. In general really and ambulatory, we are a huge fan of drill down reports and targeted feedback, so we, we rarely build any dashboards that don't have that capability, as my IT colleagues know. <laughs> okay, thank you. In terms of just our other pillars, um, I'm happy to answer detailed questions, but won't go into a deep dive here um, as it's not the focus of the committee. But for access, we continue to maintain excellent access to our specialty care services. This is our referral unit scorecard that we send out weekly to all of our operational and clinical leaders. You'll see almost all of our specialties are in the green. There are a few in the yellow and red zones, um, such as optometry. We are working on launching a new pilot for digital retinal screening for diabetic patients because that is the biggest source of the backlog, which will help decompress this shortly. And then our urology clinic, which has had a backlog, is an active recruitment for a provider. So that has been the big source of the backlog. And then I know our GI clinic 
clinic um, has been changing their templates to accommodate more of these new patient visits and added a clinic session to work it down. So this number has been steadily um, increasing. And then behavioral health, uh, these are referrals via Beacon for outpatient behavioral health, um, which are limited by capacity constraints like we've discussed before in this meeting with our current behavioral health programs. And then for ambulatory care, I didn't put it on here, but all of our clinics have same week primary care access at all four sites. Um, and then in terms of quality, I'm really hoping by the next dashboard, we will have our brand new QIP metrics, uh, which is really exciting to bring back a lot of that quality data um, that we'll be able to stratify by site, by provider. Um, those are not ready for this week yet. So more to come on that. But I did want to highlight um, a few initiatives that are really, I think, emblematic of how our SBU is approaching quality. Um, so we're launching Well Health, which is a new IT application, which is gonna plug into our Epic system. The beauty of Well Health is that it has text messaging capability. So again, my chart, you know, you need either a smartphone where you can log into the internet and set up the app, um, or you need a computer with broadband access. Well Health is just text messaging based. So for all of our patients who don't have a smartphone or don't have broadband or a home computer, they can just text back and forth bi-directionally. So we're gonna be launching it to do health campaigns, um, reach out to patients who are overdue for preventive care. Um, so really excited because this is gonna be a major strategy for us to reach all of the patients out there who are really overdue for care, not engaging in the system and drive their health outcomes. Um, we also have our the health disparities grant from the American Cancer Society that I mentioned the last time I was here. Really proud to report that another big health equity initiative that we've supported is our Black Centering Program. Um, some of you may have seen Jaisha Ren, who's one of our amazing midwives on KRON, being interviewed last week on TV. But we've had three groups now, I think, go through Black Centering and the feedback and sort of comprehensive wraparound care that we've been able to provide with grant funding and partnership with Alameda County um, is really inspiring. So look them up if you haven't already on the web. Um, and we're working to expand that even more. And then obviously, like everyone else in healthcare right now, our biggest focus has been on patient vaccination for COVID-19. So currently we are vaccinating all of our AHS patients over age 65. We're expanding to essential health workers, I believe next week. And then we'll continue to partner you know, with Alameda County as the state and the county update their guidelines to see how we can expand further. Um, I know obviously tracking health equity in our vaccination population is really critical. So did wanna just share um, race-based and language-based data that we do have for patients that we ourselves have vaccinated. And stop there for any questions or comments. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that presentation. It's great to see all the initiatives and uh, targeted care that we are providing. The, the data tracking is very good to see. And VP of Ambulatory, Catherine Horner, will be stepping in as interim CAO upon my departure. So you will meet her at our next um, board report out for SBU. And I just, you know, the ambulatory team is amazing. And as I tell them every day, they don't need me anymore. And so I, you will continue to see a really excellent level of quality improvement and performance um, with the team that's taking over. Thank you. Madam Chair, may I, may, may I say a few comments? Uh, you know, Paula, I, I, I want I want to give great thanks from the organization to Paula. I, I remember interviewing Paula for this position so many years ago, and Paula has demonstrated what what hard work 
uh, a dedication to being real analytical in your approach and uh, standard work. She's uh, given her soul to this place and um, lots of tears, lots of work, no physical blood, but close. And uh, I, I want to say thank you, Paula. It's, it's, been, it's been a journey. <laughs> thank you, Taft. I really appreciate it. And as Taft knows, he was a big part of why I took my very first job here. And like I said, you know, AHS is always going to be home. Um, so we'll see what happens at the state, but I, I hope that my paths cross again with everyone at this organization at some point in time. We know you'll go do great things. I, I would like Chair. to express, Madam Chair, just a few words about Palav. I remember Trustee Banerjee one time, she, uh, she described her to me as, as fearless, and she is indeed fearless in doing the right thing for all our patients, but also she carries big heart that fears that the care is not adequate uh, and, and, and fair for our patients. I, uh, I know, you know, when, when she took this job, um, you know, she, she had to do a lot of sacrifice and we took risk, you know, on, on her. But after six months, I realized that Palav is going to outgrow her job. And uh, she's going to leave here, leaving big part of her with us and taking also a big part of our values to the states. And um, I hope that our our uh, path will cross again, Palau. Good luck. We're proud of you. Thank you. Madam Chair, I know I'm not a member of the committee, but <laughs> I do want to join and say thank you so much, Palau, for your service and good luck. You will be missed. Thank you. Thank you, Manager. Wonderful to hear all the positive uh, remarks. Uh, Mark, do you want to continue with the next report? It wouldn't be a meeting if you weren't speaking on mute. Um, Trustee Estine, I think. Uh, are you talking about the operations dashboard? I think that was part of um, Dr. Babaria's report. Well, then that was incredibly efficient. Yes, she is that. All right, so we're going to move on to section C of our agenda. C1 and C2 will both be uh, given by our CFO, Kim Miranda. Okay, can you see the presentation and hear me okay? All right. So this is the uh, finance presentation. My first slide is the volume slide. A couple comments I want to make here. Um, you can see uh, year to date we're off about 11.6% or 12%. Um, we did not incorporate any impact to COVID in these volumes. Um, that was a decision the Budget Oversight Committee made. We, at the time we did the budget, had no idea how long the pandemic would last. We uh, could have come up with assumptions, but when we did some sensitivity analysis, it just, it just didn't uh, make sense for us to do it at that point in time. So when I look at the 12% that we are off, it's pretty much due to COVID. We haven't had any other material changes. Then if you look at the current month, our acute days are actually not 12% off, they're 5%, but our discharges are way down. So we had fewer individuals here for more days. 
The good news on that is our CMI went up. So we're at 1.664 compared to a budget of 1.388. And what that means is our expected length of stay uh, went up. And you can see the length of stay there at 6.8 is quite a bit above budget. Um, so we did a little digging into this because that's a pretty big swing in a month. And, uh, you know, these reports and dashboards like the ones that you saw um, Paulov present from Epic all had to be built since we went live. They didn't just come in a package. They had to, we had to build them out. So we've been working on building out a lot of the, the uh, CMI-related um, uh, dashboards. What was interesting is that uh, in the month of uh, January, we had 50 more sepsis cases than we've had on average all year. We had um, significantly more ventilator cases. We had significantly more uh, trach or ECMO cases. And um, in regard to respiratory infections, we ran usually between 20 and 50, and these a lot of these are COVID patients. We jumped to 119 in January. So uh, we definitely started to see more COVID patients. These are higher end or higher value DRGs, and they are um, running at the expected length of stay and our CMI. Explain what the acronym CMI is. Case mix index. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's the kind of the how you measure the acuity of of a patient, and it's all based on the Medicare DRG system. They're more complex. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then looking down at the next section, uh, this is where you can see the types of volumes that uh, that have you know, that are have changed. I mean, this is really a big change in our service mix. So our ED visits are way down. Trauma cases are down, um, surgeries are down, particularly the outpatient, which are more elective procedures. So this mix of services can definitely impact our net revenue. You go down to the skilled nursing, the discharges are quite favorable. And um, a lot of that has to do with the COVID unit that was set up. It's really helping us uh, in regard to throughput. And not only just Alameda Health System, we're accepting patients from other systems as well. And then if you look at clinic visits there, I'm showing that we're actually 2.2% below budget, which is different than what Paulov showed you. However, Paulov did note that we were red, that we had a 15% um, uh, encounters that weren't closed. In the finance world, we want to match revenue with expense. So we typically wait until a charge is dropped before we count it. Another difference is uh, in, in the ambulatory world, there are population health visits that we do, that we want to do. But some of those visits are not by a qualified provider, so we don't bill for them, can't charge for them. So there's differences there. And Paul is right. We've been uh, working at this since uh, summer to try to agree on you know, how, how these visits are gonna be reflected. On a year-to-date basis, I am consistent with Paula. She is above budget. We did not budget for telehealth. Again, that would, would have been making assumptions about the pandemic. Um, hopefully, as Paula uh, mentioned, we, we're, we're hopeful that we will continue to be reimbursed 
for telehealth after the COVID or after the emergency crisis is over. Um, so that's pretty much the volume report. The next slide is just the overall financial statement. Here you can see that uh, our net revenue or net income for the month was 12.3 million, which is 14.9 better than budget. So that's the indicator of a, of a very good month. And I'll just tell you right now, that's being driven by $20 million of CARES funding that we got. If we had not gotten that funding, we would have had, we would have been off about 8 million this month. From a cash flow or EBITDA standpoint, earnings before interest, depreciation, and amortization, uh, we generated 13.3 million, which was 14.2 million um, better than planned. Year to date, um, our net income is a loss of 21.9 or basically 22 million, which is off 25.6 million from plan. And the EBITDA or cash flow impact is a negative 12.5 million, uh, which is 36.4 off of plan. Um, so COVID is definitely having a negative impact in our performance. This is the revenue highlight slide. Uh, things I'll point out here, our gross revenue for the month of January is off of plan 8.7%. If you look at inpatient this month, we are actually positive. And again, that represents those, uh, those uh, additional patient days that are generating charges. Year to date, we're actually off 4.2, uh, which of course includes the month of January. So going down to total gross revenue, we're off 8.7 in the month and 10.6% year to date. On the net revenue side, um, we're at a 16.1% realization or collection ratio. Um, we had budgeted 16.4, which is actually very consistent with our year to date, which is also 16.4. Budget is jumping up a little higher. Uh, we did build in about 22.1 million of net revenue Im improvements to net patients uh, service revenue. Uh, in our budget, we didn't do that great of a job of spreading it. It's not easy to do that in our model. Um, so it, the, six, the difference between the 16.1 and the 16.4 is about 800,000 that we're off at an increase of 22.1, which we're still trying to negotiate and build into our budget. Um, I don't think we're that far off track. Um, we did have a nice uh, Medicare pickup last month of a million, which, which did help us. Um, but overall, we're running a, a, a bit below on net. And again, I think it has to do with the fact that um, we need to renegotiate our commercial contracts and improve our yield. Question, Kim? Yep. Is the, is the low net to gross also partly reflecting the big unfavorable variance in outpatient volume? Outpatient surgery, I would imagine, probably reimburses at a higher net to gross. Yes, thank you for that. So um, the, the service mix that we looked at where we saw the trauma down and the surgical volume down, those also will negatively impact our yield, particularly trauma because Trauma often is the commercial payer that pays way better than our other uh, payers. So 
Um, thank you for that. You're absolutely correct. Um, and the, the miss is about 800,000 this month to plan. Going down to the government funding, um, you can see COVID-19. I just decided to put it out on its own row because it's just such a big number. So you can see the 20 million coming in there and you can see year to date, the all relief funding, it's really more than just COVID. It's all the relief funding. It's 29.2 million and we did not budget anything again for, for COVID or COVID relief expense or revenue. Um, year to date, just as a reminder on the supplemental programs, we're off 17.2. Um, we received 12.9 million from the county for FY20 activity that we had budgeted in December. Um, and so that's a permanent budget difference because we moved it back to FY20. In historical years, we would receive the money in December and we would include it in the current year budget. Uh, however, because of the confirmation process with our auditors, it was discovered and moved back. So we're going to have the, the 12.9 million permanent difference, but the remainder, the difference between the 12.9 and the budget of the 15.6, uh, we do think we'll get. It'll just be in the next month or so. So that's the revenue slide. And then the expense highlights are here. Um, I'm going to talk about labor in a minute. There's really uh, three material variances this month, labor being one of them, uh, materials, supplies, and general and administrative. So materials and, and supplies are actually positive 7.8%, uh, which is you know, significantly different than where we are year to date. We're at a negative 0.8. And we've been reporting all year about the additional costs for COVID, you know, the laundry, the cleaning, you know, um, um, all of the components of uh, the additional costs from, you know, antiviral drugs, uh, reagents that are related to COVID. This month, because we had expected our surgery volume to go up, because historically it does, these are the winter months, these are when our census is usually high, we budgeted a very high number. And so this month, our COVID-related costs are actually a little bit down to run rate. However, we budgeted such a higher number that the we have a big positive, we have a shift that make, is making that more positive. The next item is general and administrative. Um, that is the result of a reclassification. So the way that we record travel, um, you know, a management fee to an outside agency to bring registry in, housing, uh, all of the costs associated with having registry staff, we consider that an administrative uh, cost and not a labor cost. And that's consistent with the OSHPOD classification um, that AHS is following. So the way this worked is we did a big prepayment to bring in registry and we needed um, you know lots of it for the strike so we just gave this big deposit and then you know we managed the strike we got through it and then all of the um, all of the reconciliations needed to happen so people had to submit their their hotel costs they had to go through the agency and then get billed back to us so there's just been this month long actually several month long process to try to get all the expenses get them paid and get them into the right place 
So uh, I would like to tell you that we're done because I thought we were done last month, to be honest with you, but there's still trailing invoices. And I guess it has to do with registry staff that um, maybe stayed here longer for like a 13 week period and they're just slower getting the expense reports in. I don't know, but it's been a quite a long process to get through. Uh, so anyway, we um, did the big reclass uh, last month and this month to try to clean up where these costs go. And so that is really the entire variance for general and administration this month. Year to date, it's being offset. We're running below budget on our administrative costs because of cost containment. And also we received the uh, beta dividend of 800,000 um, for our insurance. So I'll move to labor. So these, this is the labor slide here. And when I look at this, I usually just combine salary, wages, and registry together. Um, in a typical year, our registry costs are not more expensive than our labor. And we looked at that when I first got here last year, and that was in fact the case, or continues to be the case. Um, there is travel and, and, and whatnot that is below the line. Um, there's also benefits that we don't pay. So this is the way, looking at it this way typically will make sense. I do have to um, remind everybody that because of COVID, um, there's been a huge need for registry. And because there hasn't been you know, enough registry available, that has driven up the cost of registry. So if you look at this, uh, we are basically favorable 1.9 million in the month of January, and we are unfavorable 12.9 million year to date. So that's a big flip. So if I look at January and I take out the reclass, we pretty much would be on budget, which would be far better than we've been running all year. And what's driving that is we bumped up our staff for the winter and of course we aren't seeing those volumes but we did budget in our fixed budget which is what this is those additional FTEs and you're going to see it on the next slide you'll see the graphic of it a couple other comments on this slide um, in regard to benefits and retirement there's some negative variances although we're positive year-to-date that's a timing difference between when we actually record expenses and when we budget. Um, it's a new calendar year. And so some of the, the funding starts over for the retirement because uh, at some point when you have a certain, hit a certain threshold, we no longer contribute. And for the benefits, FICA um, is always higher in the beginning of the year. And then once you miss, miss, hit the thresholds, the, fund, the expense goes down. Finally, over in retirement on the GASB 68 and 75, which are the longer term portions of the required funding, um, there's a big positive variance of 10.2 million over there on the year to date. So when we set out to do the budget, we were using last year's actuarial report, which was based on the previous year where we the returns were not good. And so that required uh, us to increase our accrual and our, and our funding. 
So when we did the interim budget, we knew that the investment returns had improved, which was going to reduce our required funding. So the board approved a, a adjustment to get us to where we need to be at the end of the year. So that's why you see the credit coming in ever, you know, in the actual and the current period. And uh, we got this big favorable variance year to date. So by the end of the year, that variance should be about zero if we if we budgeted and did our estimates correctly. But it looks strange now until the end of the year. All right, so the next slide is the uh, FTE trend. Um, so historically, you know, and, and going back for a long time, as long as I've, you know, seen, I haven't gone back to every, you know, every year going back 10 years, but for the years that I've seen, we've always had a, the, a difference between the blue and the red line. The red line is the budgeted FTEs and the blue line is where we actually run. So the difference between those rows is basically a vacancy factor. Those are positions we built in the budget that we have never used. Then COVID came along uh, and the um, leave of absences that we granted employees. So any employee could take 12 weeks, um, you know, if they needed it for childcare or if they got sick or whatever, or needed to care for someone in their family. So that was paid leave that they didn't need to use their PTO or sick time for. Um, so that pretty much ate up that historical vacancy that we had. In January, um, you can see that our leaves of absence for COVID have dropped off. So my first bullet there is we had 43.4 FTEs in January on leave which is 149 less than December. So we're no longer granting new leaves, but people that have are on one can continue getting up to their 12 weeks. So you can see the big drop, and then you can note that our gap comes back. Um, as I mentioned in the last slide, we budgeted higher expense. That red line is going up because we were we budgeted an increase in volumes and the need to have additional staff. So the red line budget went up, the blue line went down because our COVID leaves dropped off. And there you, we are now seeing again, the start of that, that uh, vacancy spread. And then I just put a, a note there that our strike costs were about 10.4 million. That really hasn't changed. The total hasn't changed where we've booked it has changed quite a bit uh, and that it is partially offset by the fact that striking employees were not paid so that's about 3.3 and um, the total does include the registry travel all of that but i didn't try to go into retirement taxes and accrued pto savings uh, can i ask a quick question regarding the spread and the leave of absences has there been any discussion about some kind of COVID leave returning? So people can still take leave. They just need to use their PTO or their sick time, sick bank. Um, so we, it's not that they can't take it. It's just that we're not currently granting 
paid leaves, additional paid leaves. And I suppose we could, um, you know, think about making another change, but I'm not aware of anything at this point. But if I may, it's James and um, Trustee Esteem, no, we've not had any further conversation about that. So, so Kim is right. They can take a leave under the prior leave policies, but the special nuance that was created to deal with COVID leaves has not been um, revisited at this time. Okay. Has there been any change to people taking regular PTO? Have you seen any increases in that? I'm very worried about provider burnout. We, uh, trustee Steen, this is Gassan. Uh, we have seen uh, less utilization of PTO because people are not able to travel. And we have been encouraging people to take their PTO and uh, uh, you know, trying to see what we can do to, to encourage them to take PTO, even also when they want to take their CME to just like disconnect. Yeah, it's a, it is also uh, driving our negative labor variance uh, because typically people would get paid off the balance sheet using their PTO. Uh, and um, because people haven't been taking it, uh, the accrual continues to build on the balance sheet with the exception of the DTO plan. Um, and so it's sitting there for them to take in the future. And we've been paying and accruing um, PTO. So it, it is a hit to the organization. Can I just get clarification on that? If people do not take the PTO, then it reads as a future potential liability. Do people also have an, an option to cash out PTO at a certain point, or does it just fall off if you hit a certain limit? Yes. So uh, typically in this organization, we do pay out quite a bit because we, our PTO plan is very generous. And a lot of people um, ha um, cash out all the time. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, <laughs> it's a benefit that people really, really like and tend to use. Um, and for directors and above that are non-represented, we actually implemented a DTO plan, which ended that for anybody that is non-represented and a director and above. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. So moving on to the balance sheet. Um, this is the table that just kind of, I don't have every account in the balance sheet here. and. And I thought about maybe adding some more, just at least for the ones that are in the presentation, but I haven't done that yet. So as I go through it, I'll kind of explain what I'm talking about. So um, I always include the day's cash because that is a standard metric that most organizations look at. For us, it's really irrelevant. It's just the timing of when we get money from the county treasury and somebody cashes the check for payroll or for um, their uh, services that they provided. Um, so it'll fluctuate a little bit, but it's really just a timing difference because we don't have a cash account that we hold cash in. We just, um, whenever we need to make payroll, we ask for the transfer of funds from the county. It comes to us. We cut the checks. People, you know, they um, cash their checks and it go, would go back to zero if, you know, no other activity happened. So the next item is days in our AR. That's very important. And this month it did jump up. And I have a slide next to talk about that. So let's just put that on hold for a minute. Uh, days in accounts payable. 
Um, they went up slightly, but not anything I'm worried about. We are doing well on our net negative balance, which is the bottom there. We've got plenty of room to pay vendors timely. And again, our current ratio to me is meaningless also because the, the everything goes against our line of credit, which is considered a long-term liability. But again, those are the standard thing people want to see. So I've just left them there. Um, the net position uh, has deteriorated. We started at a negative position of 278 million over there at the end of last fiscal year, and now we're at 299,500. And that directly relates to our losses this year, our net income. And we've talked about that being mostly related to COVID. So, um, that is, that is a very important number and it's going the wrong direction. In regard to the line of credit with the county, the bottom line, we're actually doing very well. Um, and that is basically cash flow. And we can, we'll talk about that in a few minutes when I um, show you the, the line of credit projection. It's a couple slides further. So here's the... Um, hospital days and receivable. I wanted to give you a graph. The first thing that you need to recognize is that this is hospital only. So it doesn't tie out exactly to my last slide. My last slide said that at the end of January, we were at 71.3. This is actually pretty close, but it's not exact because I am combining PB, professional billing and HB in my balance sheet slide. But PB is much smaller so I'm just talking about hospital billing because this is explaining the variance. Why did we go up? We went up in hospital billing. This is the material part of it. So you can see right away, we've come right back down. So we're doing well, um, uh, but let's talk about why that happened. So um, the 340B, uh, we, received a notice that from the state basically asking, they were asking us to take a look at whether we were billing appropriately for 340B drugs. And this is just fee-for-service Medi-Cal. And so we put all of our claims on hold and we've been looking at our claims to see if there's a problem. At this point, we know that we build Medi-Cal um, the same way we bill everybody else, which is based on a kind of a markup table. But the for fee-for-service Medi-Cal, you need to actually bill the acquisition price. It doesn't mean they paid us what we billed, but it does mean that we, needed, we need to fix that. And so we need to be able to figure out how out of our systems can we put the correct acquisition price on a claim and it's not necessarily that easy to do because you're you know, buying at different rates from time to time, so you have to set up the systems to do this. We've done that, um, and we hope to be releasing claims soon, but we've got to test it. We've got to know it works, <laughs> and then we still have to get back to the state to, to tell them whether they have overpaid us. At this point, we don't think so. So as of 2.25, when I got this slide, we were holding $17.5 million worth of claims. That would have been 11 to 12 million as of January 31st. So how many days is that in AR? 
uh, top of my head for HB. Let me get back to you on that. I have it, but let me get through the slide here. Um, so then the final point there is our cash collections were down. Um, and you're going to see that in the next slide. So I'm also going to share that with you. But our um, we've been struggling uh, with with reconciling cash, not with the, what's in the bank, but between what's posted in Epic and what belongs somewhere else in the general ledger. So uh, we've this has been a huge cleanup that's gone on for months. And we finally made a big adjustment. It was worth 10.7 million. So 10.7 million was sitting in expense account in Epic that doesn't belong in Epic at all because it's not patient cash. So we finally got that out of the suspense in Epic and it got um, appropriately accounted for in the general ledger. So I have Terry on the phone there. Terry, we could do some quick math. What's our, you can look it up if you want. I, I thought I had the slide here, but I don't have it in front of me. It's about 2.2 days. Thank you. Thank you. So that's, that's really driving why we went up. Mm -hmm. uh, I can also point out our inpatient charges. You saw that in January. Those also went up, which would have had a small impact too. So... Um, overall, you know, you can see how it dropped down afterwards. So we have recovered nicely from that, and we still haven't uh, dropped those bills. Does that mean that the 340B is completely clear where we're operating now in the correct span for that? So we still haven't dropped those bills. They're still holding. So we still have them sitting in the queue to drop. But we need to, there's a lot of testing and IT testing that has to happen to make sure that we've got it right. Um, and, you know, since we got this letter with the state, we take it seriously. This is a compliance issue. So everybody's involved. And so we need to make sure that compliance buys off on our plan and the testing and that we're all good to go. And I think we're really close to that. I don't want to put you on the spot, Terry, whether you know if we're going to drop them anytime soon or not. But Yes, um, I can give you an update on that as of today. So um, we're hoping that tomorrow the new build in Epic could go into production, and that will address all the new charges so it won't hold up any more claims. And then today, IT has been testing um, all of our held claims so we can make sure that we safely release all those. And instead of letting all 1,728 claims go at one time, we thought, and I was more comfortable too with this, just to let them go in batches rather than let it all go at once. So we're very close this week to not only fixing going forward, but um, testing the ones and getting comfortable with the ones that we're holding. So we're almost through with this. That's fantastic news. So this next slide um, looks at our cash collections and it compares it to net revenue. And this is just epic here. So just to, to, to really give you a picture of what's been going on. So this starts in October when we went live with epic. All right. So our cash dropped off immediately, right? Because we had we needed to get claims out the door. 
um, and we were very slow to do that. So then you saw our cash climb up uh, in March. So that was kind of the backlog. And then in April, we were limping along. We dropped below our net revenue line, which is the blue. So that was very concerning, you know, that, oh, my gosh, does this mean that, you know, we're going to have to make an adjustment? Uh, and then we picked right back up again. And I think that is because although we did get a bolus of cash in, we also got a bolus of denials that we had to work. So then we worked those denials and we started seeing our cash come up above the net revenue line since uh, August. Had one month there in November where it, it dropped a little bit. And I, and I think we did talk about that um, be, having to have to do with the holidays at the end of the month. And there might have been, there was a little bit of a posting lag. Now in January, look at that. You go, wow, what the heck happened? Well, we took out that, um, 10.9 or 10.7 million that was sitting in Epic that doesn't belong there. It didn't belong, it isn't part of patient cash. So the good news, which you all need to take away from this, is that our lines have met and that is what you need to see. So what this is telling you is that our net revenue is turning into cash. And uh, this is to me a very important graph um, although it's been difficult to show recently, you know, since going, you know, since I've been here pretty much because of these huge fluctuations. So uh, just a comment, Kim. So would it be correct to say that when your collections exceeds your net patient revenue, your days in AR are going down? Yes, that's fair. Um, over time, we really want, you really want to be at 100%. You're going to vary a little bit based on, you know, some, some timing differences. Like if your charges go up, you know, your AR is going to go up because you need time to collect it, right? But in over like a three-month period, that would be 90 days, you would expect that you would always turn over your net revenue. Any questions on this? I do have a question, but I'm not quite sure how to say it. So I might fumble a little, but how does this relate to like aggressive billing practices and aggressive collections with our payer mixes? So that's actually a really good question because what you're, what you're alluding to is that, okay, so we did a good job of guesstimating what our net revenue is and we've collected it, but did we maximize our revenue or, you know, and that's, that is actually a different discussion. That is, you know, how are we doing to what we would expect to collect? Um, and obviously we're not gonna do a lot of those um, collection, um, uh, what would you call them, uh, activities that are forbidden or that are against our mission, right? So if it's a self-pay patient, we're not gonna expect to get a lot of money from them. Um, but what the other side of this is, are we collecting what we expect to collect based on our contracts? And currently we have not loaded or are not using the expected payment module and Epic. We went live with it on and it just stopped all of our, all payment activity because it was not built correctly. So 
what what we're doing is we're ne renegotiating our commercial contracts, which are part of the uh, this whole um, um, improvement initiative. And as we get those contracts done, we want to start building them into Epic. It's going to take time to get that module working right. It is not something simple. It's complicated. And a lot of it depends upon, you know, how easy it is to build the contract terms into Epic. So we've got work to do. This is one of the big projects um, that we're, we're looking at. Uh, probably what uh, Trustee Fox will ask me next is, well, how do you know if, you know, you accepted the appropriate payment? And so what we're doing there is we've, we look at low pays and then we outsource those. We've got a, a, a firm that we use that, that um, to help us collect. And we're going to talk about the policy later. So maybe Terry can get into a little bit of that when, if we want to get to that, if we have time to get to that detail, but we are, we do want your approval on our charity care and our debt management policies tonight. So then I'm still on the balance sheet. This, this item was not in my um, table. I can put it in there to make it all flow better if it's easier for people. This is not, you know, something that really changes month to month. And it's not typically something we would worry about on a day-to-day -day basis. The reason why this slide is in here is the old administration wanted to monitor two things. And the two things they wanted to monitor were the capital designation receivable. That's the $14 million that you see there on the second line. And they wanted to monitor the capital cost receivable and capital cost payable, which is the 25804 there under due from and the um, due to the bottom line there at 21386. So if I net those, what that is telling you is that there is 4.4 million due to us from the county for the capital cost receivable payable. And the reason why these things are, are this slide is here are those two things, like I said, the capital um, designation and also the capital cost is because no one wanted us to forget about these things. So the county has told us that they are open to using the EPIC operating costs to pay us the 14 million We've done the presentation to them. My understanding is they're working on figuring out how to release this 14 million to us. In regard to the capital cost, we are going to give them another 1.2 million here as soon as they approve the work papers. Um, they're in Melissa Wilkes desk uh, and she's looking at those. And if she approves it, we're going to write, we're going to send them 1.2 million. So this, this net of 4.4 is going to go up to 5.6. So how do we get it back, right? There's no real process that's been put in place to do that. But my agreement with the staff folks in the county is that I would come up with a couple capital projects and submit them to them to reimburse us. So that work needs to be done. But that's the whole purpose of this slide is just to make sure that we don't lose track of those two things. Any questions? 
So the next slide is the um, supplemental programs. And again, this net is not on my other slide, but it's on our balance sheet. The middle column there is the net balance. So what that is at 10.277 there is a... Oh. You went Jimmy, on. you're muted. Jimmy, you want to mute? Go ahead. I think. I didn't touch anything, I swear. <laughs> I got gremlins. <laughs> so I don't know where I where where it cut me off, but um, so I'll start over. So this is these are the supplemental programs. They net down to ten million two seventy-seven. So that is a payable that is on our balance sheet. And I could put it over on that other chart if it makes it easier, but um, but basically um, we owe ten million three hundred thousand um, net to in for all of our supplemental programs as of the end of January. Okay, so what this report is telling you on the left side is these are the years where the receivables and payables came on our books. So for fiscal year two through 18, we have 166.4 million of liability. For 19 and 20, we have a receivable of 43 million. For FY21, we have a receivable of 112.9. Net those across, you get to the payable of 10.3. So that's just simple math across the bottom. And then because, because cash flow is such a big deal with these programs, I've guesstimating for you when we think we're going to receive or pay these funds. So the first item there is our Medicare cost report. We've got a lot of years sitting out there because of this SSI ratio issue, which is something we can get into another time. But uh, basically, they're, they're sitting out there waiting till the SSI ratio has been determined. So we I am showing a total of 14.4 due. We are going to pay 9 million five in March. Well, I just signed that check request. So that's going out the door and that's why it's in FY21 and it says March. It says the rest of that 14 isn't going to get paid out until 22 or later. When we start doing the budget presentation, we'll actually put the additional years here. I could do it here if you wanted it, but the idea is that it's not in this fiscal year, right? Because we're just talking about this fiscal year in this presentation to the FY21 budget. So then the next two items are waivers. The first one there is FY16 um, forward. Uh, that one, we're just got P14s that are in various stages of audit. The next one there is the 10 through 15 um, period, and that mirrors with the old waiver of 10 through 15. So a change that I made this month is I decided to make a new row to try to make things simpler that says Medi-Cal P14 old waiver FY10 through 15, and now that mirrors the old waiver FY10 through 15. So our liability for those years are the 13.2 and the 71 million six. These numbers haven't changed, but I am reflecting that the Medi-Cal portion in its own line 
so that it mirrors the old waiver period. And I just thought it might be easier as you guys, you know, start to learn what all of these waivers are about. At least then I won't commingle different types of waivers. So those two items are there. And then the current waiver, 16 through 20, that's been extended to 21, is uh, sitting there. And we're expecting to get 24.9 million in June. But we do think ultimately we'll pay back 37.2. The uh, AB 85 realignment, um, that's related to physical health uh, for Medi-Cal. And that comes to us through the county on an HPAC contract. We actually had hoped to have the, uh, the we had the base HVAC contract done, then there's metrics and stuff that are associated with the amendment. So we had, we've done the amendment, but now we need to get paid for it. So uh, we had hoped that we'd get that money in December. We now think it'll be February because we've got that amendment done. The FQHC, um, we've got 42 million from, you know, FY2 to 18. Um, that relates to a settlement that we're working on with the state. We have attorneys that are representing us, and it has to do with the fact that we were billing for our clinics at the Highland campus as FQs, and the state denied all of the locations on our campus. They said, oh, no, no, only K-6 is, I think it's either K-6 or K-7, only that is the FQ. So therefore, you should never have billed for any of these other sites. And so the the settlement is the difference between the FQ rate and the fee-for-service rate. It's probably conservative. I, 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 I would struggle if we really had to write a check for that. But I'm going with um, what uh, what the spread, the work that my predecessor did um, with, uh, I believe it was Toyo, it was with one of the consultants. The next item there is the uh, Physician Spa, which is a certified public expenditure program. And um, we've got a big liability sitting out there in 02 to 18. And um, the high risk payment that I've got from the previous years on the next slide is the 30 million. And this, this is a big project for the state to reconcile all these utilization files. And I think COVID is just really making this move forward at a snail's pace. They've told us that, it, that we probably won't have this settled until 22 or 23. The next item is the Medi-Cal Managed Cal you know, EPP, which is the Expanded Payment Program, and QIP is Quality Incentive Program. Um, these are um, newer programs. Um, these are, uh, you can see we've got, we have big receivable there of 114.3. Um, this has replaced some other programs, and what it has done is kind of delayed our funding because now they're, they tend to be more um, um, quality um, incentive driven, which means that, you know, you have to show that you've earned them before you get paid. So they have kind of slowed the, the funding down, but we do expect to get 22,000 in April. The next one is the rate range for Medi-Cal. Um, this basically is 
uh, a program that um, allows us to get additional funding that we are not receiving from like the Alliance and Blue Cross that we're contracted with. So we have contract rates from them, but we get a supplemental payment based on a range. Um, and I've got, I don't, I probably should have said this when I, before I started, but in your packet, there is a write-up that basically where we've tried to explain what all these programs are. And it's there for your reading pleasure. I don't intend to go through it all tonight. I'm not the expert in this, um, but uh, I did include it. And that's why I'm spending the time walking through these with you tonight, because it relates right back to what we sent you in your packet. Thank you for mentioning that, Kim. I, I'm super excited for us to have some time to digest all of these very large numbers and complex scenarios about what we may have to pay back or not and when um, because uh, supplements it's hard to tell here but supplements represent 40 to 50 percent of our overall revenue and so getting a, a firm understanding of it is going to be very important um, and the the trustees will be offered a training through the california association of public hospitals so that we can get an understanding of what these uh, supplements and waivers really consist of um, the settlement process and negotiating all that stuff is like next level to consider but uh, it is very important for us to try to understand tonight it feels like greek but i know that we will get a deeper understanding as we go um, how did the other trustees feel about following along question i you know i i think these are very very complex uh, issues and, and the settlements are complex and Kim I know that you've been in the private sector I think till about a year ago so are you are you comfortable that you have the resources both internally and externally to um, uh, to properly uh, protect our interests in all of these things well you are Right, Trustee Fox, this is new to me. I have attended the CAPH training. It was, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think like maybe five sessions for three hours or so. Uh, so. It was a great program. I did learn a lot. But am I an expert? No. I mean, this is very complicated. It's, uh, you know, every one of these programs was set up for a purpose to do something. And then depending upon what that purpose is, is different measurements. Um, I rely a lot on CAPH. Um, in fact, I've got them in my my uh, cell phone, and and even and my staff also. We 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 participate in all of their um, office sessions. They have them regularly. They give us updates on all of these programs. They do an amazing job um, trying to help keep us on top of it. And I'm thrilled that we're going to try to work with them to do a training for all of you. I think. Hopefully it'll maybe be during the retreat. I don't know, but I, I I think it would be excellent for you all, the whole the whole board, to to listen. They do an amazing job, and they know this inside out and backwards. Um, for me, because we just lost our director over um, government reimbursement, um, she's actually not gone far. She's uh, working for the Alameda Alliance, um, but she. Uh, I relied on her heavily. I mean, she and I developed this spreadsheet together because we needed to figure out how we could communicate because 
you know, if you miss one of these, you could totally miss your projection on your NNB, right? I mean, this is this is major. So I spent a lot of time with her, and she's uh, definitely uh, tried to educate me. Um, and so I know I know a bit, but um, I'm I'm not an expert. So I do have to reach out to others for help on on this topic. Uh, this document here helps me a lot. It helps me keep on top of it, and that's why I've included it in the presentation for all of you. And I included it with the write-ups of the explanations for all of these, so that you know they correlate, so you can kind of get an, an understanding of what all this means. Um, but this this is how we drive, you know, half of our our almost half of our income, which uh, of course has a huge impact on the NNB and line of credit with the county. Trustee Blue, uh, I noticed you had your hand up. Yeah, um, thank you for the report, Kimberly, but um, I don't know who it was that was talking first, but I wanna say that this is extremely complicated. Mm -hmm. And if we are to, uh, I, I assume that the trustees will approve the next budget, right? It's a fiscal budget. So I assume we'll be having to approve uh, the next fiscal year's budget. and. I'm just very uncomfortable approving a budget where I don't really understand a lot of these items, especially on the supplementals and whatever funding we get, either from the state state um, legislature or from the feds. Um, so it just makes me nervous um, that I just don't feel like I'm equipped to really take a look at this uh, budget and understand it. So. Uh, we definitely need a training, at least I need a training to really understand all of these different waivers, what's more important to us than this waiver. You know, I'd like a sense of that too, just in terms of where we as uh, trustees really need to focus in on, because um, this is a lot. And I don't know if anybody else feels the same way, but that's how I feel. Absolutely. I think. We all, we all feel the same. We all feel that way. Okay. I thought maybe somebody knew this more than I, you know, than I, I do. So. Well, Trustee Blue, it's, it's James, and, and I appreciate your candor, and I'm sure that you speak for others. Um, I think Kim has really painted a detailed picture of the current state, but we had our budget um, planning meeting this morning internally, and what we're looking to do is to really, um, frankly, bring more kind of um, clarity to the elements that you're seeing here right now and also to simplify it. And so um, we did a yes. lot of massaging because the reality is that Kim and her team, they live this. And this is mm -hmm. kind of their language. And what we're looking to do is to translate it, if you will, into a, uh, a more digestible form. And so, you know, I, I, I hear you and I agree with you and I look forward to coming back with more clarity, but also with uh, more simplification not because you're simple but this is not your daily jargon and so we need to make it digestible for you and, and we'll do that thank you appreciate that greatly appreciate uh, and, and maybe too just i think it was a good a good suggestion um just to give you all comfort level you know we have a, a budget that you know that we've we've uh that we're working on and you know a lot of that comes from what we've heard from caph so they could actually in their presentation maybe um, talk about you know what's 
instead of the history like these old waivers, but what's happening in the future and how it might impact our budgeting. So just as a thought, that might be a good way to um, you know create the presentation because you know the old waiver is the old waiver, but it's past. So you know, it may be a good idea to really focus on the future and you know CAPH. Uh, could talk about both, but I think the budget's going to be the future. And so if you were trying to get comfortable with approving a budget, you want to know what's what the what the next year and if we're going to do a strategic plan next five years are going to the supplementals are going to uh, what the impacts are going to be and what they think how they, what they think the states and the feds are going to do and that and they do a lot of advocacy and they really know how to um, present it in a way that people can understand far better than I can. Yeah, and because we're going to have a day-long retreat, we're going to need something that's digestible in a, in a period of time that is also reasonable. Um, so I think it is important that we figure out exactly what is on the, the agenda for the training. But I did want to circle back to, you said we lost our government uh, funds director. I might be getting the title wrong. And I just wanted to to find out what is the process for uh, replacing this person who did this expert work for years and years. Um, I think training and classes are great, but this was someone who lived this work every day, as James said. Um, so a plan or a process. So currently, we're, what we've done is have two interim people that have stepped up to be the leaders of the department. There's two of them, and they're working together, and I'm working with them. Um, Shulin, when she left, um, she was quite clear that she felt that she had a top-notch team that, um, and that I wouldn't even miss her. Now, sorry, Shulin, but that's not the case. But, <laughs> but anyway, uh, um, uh, I do have two people that are stepping up, and so for now, I haven't posted it. I'm kind of, um, kind of see, assessing how they're doing and how we, what our next steps might be. Yeah, I think it's incredibly telling that one person is now being replaced by two. It it emphasizes the level of expertise that is needed in, in this work. Um, so I would love to hear more about that in an ongoing way. Okay. So, uh, Jen, um, mm -hmm. Jennifer, I, I have one more question. Please go right ahead. Um, is there anybody on AHS staff that does government relations for us? Because a lot of this has to be done in Sacramento. And it's helpful to have somebody who understands all of these waivers and Medi-Cal uh, items and can work that through the state capital. So Trustee Blue, that was I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, I think somebody was going to say what I was saying, which is that that would be in Tangerine Brigham shop. That's our um, leader for population health. Yeah, I'm right here. Oh, there she is. Very good. Oh, okay. Yes, uh, Trustee Blue. Yes, we do have someone um, who was part of our PACE team under uh, Terry Lightfoot. Her name is Elizabeth Lamb. And so she is our government relations staff member. When I came to the organization, we actually... Um, had a consultant who did that work, but we thought it was so important to have someone based within the organization. Um, they follow um, both state and also federal uh, legislative activities, budget activities, and work very closely with uh, CPH 
Um, we participate in lobbying days. We go to, before COVID, we go to Sacramento. We would make our case uh, not only with uh, elected officials uh, covering the districts with, where there are AHS facilities, um, but we also partnered with other organizations, BIVC, PH, uh, and CPCA, uh, CHA, and others on common issues. So we do have someone who monitors this on a routine basis. And I um, participate on the CAPH board uh, representing AH, uh, AHS. Thank you. All right, any more questions on supplementals or can I move on? I'm sure we'll talk about these again and again, but yes, let's move on. Okay. All right, so the next slide is our line of credit forecast. Um, and the purpose of this is we always want to make sure that we are going to be compliant with the net negative balance, which is the black line on this slide. So the way that the permanent agreement reads is that during the year, um, during the fiscal year, we can actually um, have more line of credit available, but at the end of the fiscal year, it has to be, it drops. And then each, each um, year it goes down a little bit. So at uh, 63020, we needed to be at 125 and we came in at, you know, just about 83 or whatever that is right there. So we were way below where the 125 limit was. Now, there's a reason for that, and I know that it's kind of water under the bridge, but I put it on every presentation because I don't want anyone to forget. And that is that we got advances. We got advances that helped us drive down this um, balance. We got um, safety net care pool funding of 15.1. Uh, I think the government realized that hospitals were hurting, and they settled up the a portion of the old waivers. That's the safety net care pool portion probably <laughs> go read all that document I sent. <laughs> um, some of that we got to pay back, just so you know. On the HPAC, um, the county paid us early, 16.2. Normally we would have expected that in September. Uh, and then also uh, the feds approved GME funding, uh, which uh, was great for us at the time because we didn't know if CMS was going to approve it or if we were going to get it. So that was like a almost like a windfall. We there was a lot of advocacy, advocacy happening and it did come through and it came through from them right when we you know, needed it with COVID. So that's a, that's a lot of money that really helped our situation because last year we were projecting that we were going to be right at 125 or very close and we may not make it. And then of course we had the red line last year that would, was way exceeding it and that's if we had to pay back the recoupments. That's what this red line um, represents. So then here we are today, which is the dotted line. So we're actual to the left and forecast to the right. Doing very well. I mentioned that when we were on the balance sheet slide. What we've done is we've taken the recruitments from the old ones, not the current ones, the ones that we're considering the, as um, prior year recruitments. And I have a table where you'll see those and you saw them on the, my last slide. Um, we've pushed them out past 630 into next fiscal year. So um, what's happening is we believe we're going to be able to meet 
the NNB requirement, which dropped a little bit this to, what is it, 120 um, this next year, and it'll drop again next year by another five. But during the year, we can go up as long as at the end of the year, we're back down where we need to be. And that's the permanent agreement with the county. So the good news is that CARES funding we got helped us, some other things too, but it, it now is making my forecast um, say we are going to be able to hit it at June 30, 21. Then if you follow the blue, that's my forecast. Now, granted, we don't have a budget done yet. So a forecast is just basically looking at how we've been running and uh, forecasting it forward. Granted, the supplementals are done just as you saw them. I put them in based on the cash flow that I just showed you. And that shows now that we are going to be in a in a bad situation at the end of 630-22, even from operations, that we won't hit our um, NNB limit at the end of the year at 630-22. The blue line is above the red line. Um, the recoupments, those are those, those things that are looming out there that we don't know when they're going to settle. But if they did settle, you can see how much more we would exceed that NNB. A question, Kim? Yeah. I think I read somewhere in your report uh, that we're about $50 million below budget in capital spending this year. That is correct. So that also is a big contributor to our NNB being so far below the limit, correct? You are absolutely correct. And our, are we going to have to catch up on some of that spending or are we going to kind of start again with a new capital budget? Because I'm just thinking if, if, if we need to catch up when things calm down from COVID, uh, that's going to be a, a big impact also. Yes, James and Mark, we're meeting tomorrow morning actually to go over the capital budget. Um, when, before Luis had left, he had uh, his team kind of working on what we might actually accomplish this year. Um, but clearly with COVID, the, uh, the new items or the placeholders we had in the budget have not been, um, have not been brought forward. The, um, the, cap the capital that was approved in previous years and, the, and we were just continuing to work on the projects, those, that is where the money has been coming from. And then we've had some emergency items. I think we've got, uh, we had a request that at some point you wanted me to come back uh, in our tracker and talk about, you know, what we have spent this year, which, which we can do. It's not, just wasn't on the tracker for this month. Um, can I ask, ask a question? Out. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, or... That's blind. Um, sorry. Yeah. So your forecasting here, does that, does that uh, include increased, Labor costs? No, we do not have a budget or anything for next year. It is just run rate. Okay. So all I'm doing is just saying, okay, we've these are the draws that we've had. These are, you know, this is the revenue we're bringing in. This is what it looks like. Once we have a budget done for next year, then we'll update that blue line. Thank you. So um, if you 
from the county perspective, I mean, just uh, let me go back one. From the county perspective, they're looking at us being way down here on the line of credit. So, you know, from their vantage point, they're thinking, wow, you know, this is, they're doing, we're doing really well, right? You know, much ado about nothing, so to speak. Um, so there's a reason for that. We, we did get all of those um, prepayments. That's a piece of it. But there's also several other things going on. And I've tried to bullet them here for you. Um, we did make a payment on the old waiver. We did get a demand for $7 million, which we were able to pay. Um, we do have this loss that's sitting out there of the $12.5 million. Um, but our patient cash is ahead of where we projected. Measure A is running ahead. We haven't actually accrued additional revenue. We've just been accruing the budget of 117.7, and we're at 123 million right now. So, you know, we haven't recognized it because typically what happens is you get past Christmas and then all of a sudden people stop spending. So we just, we've historically not made a true up until later in the year, but that is obviously a positive cash impact because we have gotten the 123. Uh, when we only thought we only had a budget of 117. So that's a pickup. Um, the COVID relief money. Um, we, uh, we've received money. None of that, of course, was budgeted or in my forecast because we had no idea um, what we would receive. So we've actually gotten cash of 31.7 million this year. Um, behavioral health funding, I, I mentioned this earlier. Uh, we did have 15.6 in December. We only got 12.9, but we still think we'll get the 2.5. So I probably can get rid of this bullet now because it's not that big of a deal anymore. It was a big deal a few months ago. And then there's the bullet that Trustee Fox talked about, our CapEx spending. As of January 31st, so seven months into the fiscal year, we spent 11.1. And for the full year, we had planned to set, spend 60.8. And so trust, it's James, trustees. The point of the meeting that Kim referred to tomorrow is to really look at where are we in regards to all of the capital projects that were approved for this year and to make sure that things that were critical, mission critical, are in fact being pushed forward and that we're doing the work necessary to prevent a critical failure um, and that we're spending appropriately from a capital perspective. And so, again, that meeting is taking place tomorrow morning with all of the um, the facilities leaders. So at the bottom of this slide is a chart, and this was actually done at the request of the county. Um, they really wanted to understand, you know, you know, what was in my forecast, you know, why are you, you know, telling us that, you know, we're going to, you know, especially that red line, why are we going to be so far over the NNB? So, uh, and they wanted positive and negative. So that's what this is. I've only got it going. I've only got the material, you know, the big dollar amounts in here uh, just to try to keep it simple, you know, to, to James's point, a, a lot of this is very complicated. So trying to simplify is a really good idea. So that's kind of what are we attempted to do here. So those first four rows are what we call the recoupments and that 
that is not something that I came up with that my predecessors did, right? Because those are going back a long time. The, the amounts may have changed a bit over the years, but not really that much in total. So there's the old waiver there of the 71.6. There's the FQHC recoupment of 40. The Medi-Cal um, P14 cost reports, the FY11 through 15, I took that down. It used to be 30 million because we used to, and it wasn't, again, it's just, I just was mere, you know, repeating the past. It used to go up a few more years. Um, I just decided, let's just have a clean break. Let's just call it the same period as the waiver because it's all related. So that's the 13.2, which has, it does look better uh, on that row because it's mirroring the same period as the old waiver. And then there is the spa uh, because of the, we're not sure that we can produce the documentation to keep those funds. And that's a, a 22, 23 um, reconciliation period that could be 30 million. So those, those are, that's kind of the old story. And that really, the story has not really changed that much at all. Um, then there's the current large flows in coming in. Um, we talked about already, I think all of these in that cash flow, they all should be there. I just want to notice that there is a change and I noticed it on the previous graph with the N and B, the shift on these balloon payments, which haven't come due yet, but will at some point, and hopefully will not be expected due in full all at once. It has shifted out of this fiscal year, out of this budget. And I find that to be incredibly relieving um, because it gives us a more realistic picture of our financial position. Um, it, it, you know, $124 million due in full is a scary prospect. Um, so to, to even see it shifted out of the timeline for consideration during this fiscal year, I don't know if that was um, done for a specific reason, but it certainly makes me feel better and I thank you for it. Well, I, probably a false sense of security because I have no idea when the demands are gonna come. I just know that here we are in the beginning of March and I haven't gotten anything. So usually I'm gonna know at least a month ahead. That brings you to April. So then I'm kind of hedging May, June and I know COVID is having an impact. So they the, the demands could come tomorrow. I just don't know where to put them. Um, we just moved them to July to next fiscal year. Uh, we know they're sitting out there, um, their estimates, um, I hope I haven't, you know, we could get a demand tomorrow and then <laughs> you, you'll be mad at me that I moved them. But I, I, that was kind of how we, we typically went with what the CA, what CAPH said, which meant that all of the, um, the Medi-Cal and the old waivers for 11 through 15 were to get settled on December 31st. And they were telling us that in November, okay? <laughs> so, uh, and obviously that didn't happen. We did, we were able to talk to some of the staff and they told us that there was a lot of appeals that were open on some of the public hospitals. And if those appeals are open, they can't settle it until all of them are done because we owe each other money, right? So um, I don't know how long it'll be. <laughs> and so we just, we moved them to March last time and people weren't too thrilled with that. So we just decided let's move them to the next fiscal year. Uh, I, 
I am leery to exclude them all together because I don't want people to forget about it, right? So somehow we have to make sure people know they're there, but we don't know, you know, the timing. And, you know, I know there's the hope that we can put away some money, some reserves, some cash so that we can pay them. But my fear is if I just left them off the schedule, people would just, you know, we wouldn't worry about it. And I think we do need to not forget that we have these liabilities out there. Thank you Kim, for that. Uh, Madam Chair, may I? I, I Kim, uh, uh, thank you for that report. And, you know, obviously the 124.8 is, uh, is terrifying to us. Um, could you imagine that they, that this would be that this would become as balloon payments? I just can't imagine that it would be to the benefit uh, of 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 the state uh, for us to pay back because it would sink a hospital system. So I guess my question is, where do we have the dialogue about? Uh, you know, sure, uh, this is about amortizing this over time rather than balloon. And and I I question whether that's a, and this is out of my wheelhouse. Is that a question for our government affairs people, you know, getting ahead of it and saying, hey, okay, we see the numbers 124. It's impossible for us to write a check for that. Um, um, can we amortize this over, you know, whatever, you know, two decades yeah, so, or whatever. So the, so the total is 152 if you add it all there. So Sorry. just because okay. the 150 is kind of a number that's been floating around for years. But okay. anyway, um, so that's a great question. So advocacy is great we i think that that is is something we should be doing because we're not the only hospital system that has this big liability right okay we're not the only one and some people have receivables and do they need it today i don't know could you make payments i don't know but we did call the state and we told them we don't have cash yes. In fact, yeah. the, the county um, rebecca Gephardt uh participated in the call with me and we asked them you know directly Will, will are, is there an opportunity to make payments over time? I mean, these liabilities are for so long ago, you know, how is an organization supposed to, you know, to manage to this? And they were open. They didn't close the door to us. They just said that until we know exactly how much is due, we, we can't even have that conversation. So they said, we need to settle this and then let's talk. They didn't say, yes, you know, we can give you 10 years or five years. In fact, they said we were hoping within one fiscal year, but that she didn't commit to anything at all, except for that we would have the conversation after these were settled. Okay. I, I just can't imagine how this, uh, uh, how this would be helpful for California healthcare. Uh, this would, you're, you're right, we're not the only hospital. And if the, if, if the drivers to sink hospitals, this is the way to do it with balloon payments of this degree. <laughs> I'm preaching to the choir. I'll shut up now. Yeah, but I do think that it's a really good point that we should keep reminding them that you know we're a safety net, you know, and we're not and we're not alone. And these are big dollars, <laughs> huge dollars. All right, so that's my uh, presentation. I, I always just stick these things in here in case you guys want to see them. They're just all of the relief funding we've received from COVID uh, so that everyone kind of knows how much we got and from who. And then um, I also include our expenses, although these are really more, uh, this isn't everything, it's what I can capture. Um, just as an update to the last meeting we had, um, 
uh, Moss Adams and my uh, accounting team started work on the Health and Human Services submission where we're going to reconcile um, what our uh, lost revenue and COVID expenses were against the money that we received, which will be part of the single audit that Moss Adams will do when they audit us um, at the end of the fiscal year. Uh, so I will uh, give updates once you know once we've uh, gone through this process and uh, learn kind of how it's working. It, it unfortunately it keeps moving, but it's <laughs> it's getting a little more solid. And so we know we have to make a submission. They open the portal, but we can't do it yet. So my fear is they could say, Kim, you have to have this stuff submitted in two weeks. And so I thought, you know, if they did that, I would be in a world of hurt. So we brought um, uh, Moss Adams in. We had our first meeting. Um, I think it was, was it days of run together. I think it might have been last Thursday or last Friday afternoon, I think. And so we have another meeting next Friday where we will have the first components done so we can judge how much more work we need to do because we may need to get help from outside. Uh, but anyway, we're, uh, we are working on that reconciliation process because uh, although we don't think we'll have to pay anything back, we need to know that. So we talked about that a little bit last time. I thought I better just, you know, clear the air on that. That is my finance report. Madam Chair, may I? Go ahead. Um, you know what? I This stuff is so dense and complex, uh, even to the experts. And um, I think what would be helpful would be to have sort of a historical context for on, on what the permanent agreement is, you know, just in one or two pages, maybe for the trustees and, you know, even for the general public, we use these words like, you know, you know, the permanent agreement. And there's, uh, I sat in a room uh, today with Trustee Esteen and some very smart people uh, from the county administrator's office. And they they kind of walked us through some history. And, they, you know, I, I frantically wrote some notes down. And even then, it's pretty dense. But understanding that history, so perhaps Trustee Esteen and I can, can work with uh, uh, Kim to give sort of a summary document on that. And, you know, the basic things like I think the final permanent agreement, that, you know, our current version, came in 2016 is my understanding and 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 understanding that this permanent agreement really relates to a line of credit um we're, we're we're currently under under guidelines to reduce our net negative balance to 50 million dollars by 2034 and our obligation is to pay this down at five million dollars a year so just these like little basic facts if we could keep articulating this to each other, I think it can give a little bit better context because otherwise this is sort of the tyranny of numbers. You know, we, uh, we're we looking at this stuff and our, all our eyes are glossing over. So I, I always like to start with fundamentals. So perhaps uh, uh, Trustee Esteen, uh, Madam Chair, Trust, uh, Madam Chair Esteen can help us kind of develop like a simple um, primer <laughs> for, for the rest of the trustees on this based on some of the notes you and I took today. Yeah, I think that is a good idea. We did have a, a conversation with some really smart people and they gave us a, a an overview that lasted an hour. And it made me think about the orientation that we started with as trustees. Um, and I wonder if it makes sense to have a finance committee specific type of orientation that would include uh, that 
kind of background that Trustee Bouquet is referencing. So yeah, I think we probably should discuss that offline. I think that's a fabulous idea, and I'd like to participate if you don't mind. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. So was that the total of C1, budget goals and guiding principles, and now we're moving into C2, strategic initiative updates? We have the budget guiding principles next. You want me to go ahead with that? Thank you so much. All right, let's make sure you all can see that. Can you see it? It's one slide. Okay. Um, so last time at Finance Committee, we brought to you a draft of what our FY22 budget goals and guiding principles would be. And this provides the framework for which we make decisions to build our budget. So to me, this is very important. Um, so we listened to the feedback that we got from Finance Committee. We've met with ELT. Um, the Budget Oversight Committee basically owns this. So they, they're the ones that, you know, we have ultimately come up with this, uh, taking into consideration all of your feedback and ELT. So I'm going to go through this and um, uh, see if there's, if you all are in agreement that we've captured everything here, or if you see any problems, you can, you can let us know. So we feel that this budget year needs to be a practical approach. You know, we don't have a strategic plan. We can't make a budget a strategic plan. Uh, we've got new leadership. Uh, and so it's unlikely there's going to be major changes that are going to occur in the next 12 months. So we want to use a run rate approach or stick with a run rate approach to budgeting. We want to consider the external factors. You know, we, we reconcile, we reckon, we recognize, well, it's hard for me to say that there are things that we must take under into account, including COVID. We cannot just ignore COVID. We have to come up with some assumptions regarding COVID and we recognize it and we will do that. Um, there's gonna be other things too. There's gonna be some program and policy changes. We talked about those supplemental programs. We know that there are gonna be things that, that are coming at us externally that we have to address. We know that we need to be, we need a sustainable budget. So what we heard was that we need to go for a break even operating margin. So that's not EBITDA, that is operating margin, which is after depreciation. And we know that that will not be enough to pay those recoupments from prior years. So we're just gonna acknowledge that and move on to this target. We know that we need to engage with the county to make sure that if those, you know, those recoupments come up, that we figure out something to be structurally sound. We also heard that we need stretch goals. We need to show continuous improvement in our operating performance. It's not good enough just to repeat history. We've got to build in leveraging our technologies such as EPIC 
and that we need to focus on expense management because we may not have enough opportunity and revenue. So we've got to cut the expenses. So we will build in stretch goals. We'll show continuous improvement. We will um, actually be able to track initiatives that we build into the budget so we can see how we're doing to meet these stretch goals. So that's what we've come up with. Uh, what is the committee's pleasure? What do you think? The committee is uh, not the trustees, right? Yes, I'm sorry. I meant the finance committee. Okay, just making sure. There's too many of the same words that mean different things. Um, I think what's the run rate? Yeah, sorry. go ahead, Trustee Blue. What's run rate budgeting? So what we did is we took a period of time pre-COVID. So basically for Alameda Health System in March of 2020, COVID hit. So we took the 12 months before that um, as pre-COVID as our baseline. We did have to make adjustments to it because you know a run rate means it's what you think is gonna go forward. So we had to adjust supplementals and we had to do some other things to make it work. But that's, our, that's what we mean by run rate, that history will repeat itself although there are some scrubbing that you have to do to make it make sense. Thank you. Go ahead, Trustee Fox. In terms of continuous improvement and stretch goals, um, does it make sense to use as a guide uh, benchmarking ourselves against other uh, public hospitals let's say other comparable public hospitals in the state. Because uh, it seems to me if we are operating uh, behind some of the ratios that they are at, and I don't know any specifically, but just I know that there are, there are many benchmark metrics out there. But moving toward what's, what's common operating uh, ratios and metrics for like public hospitals might give us a little bit of a guide on where to set our improvement goals. I think that's a, a very good idea. We have uh, looked at some of that just in the time I've been here. Um, I have I have some information, and I'm sure CAPH has you know even more. Uh, and I do think that's a, a good idea. I mean, we we should be able to perform at least as good as another, you know, public hospital system. I think all of us want to strive to, to, to do a great job, not only with our mission, but also for our finance in our financial. Uh, Trustee Fox, this is Mark Fratsky. That is our intent this year is to try to benchmark department by department. What's best practice around FTE and efficiencies in, in departments of, in hospitals that are similar to ours. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of understand what that swag is and how, how much we may be better or how much we may have room for improvement. So yeah, it's a, it's a really good point and uh, we need to start doing that.
We have, uh, you know, uh, engaged folks to look at labor standards for sure. That's one area where we've got, we've done quite a bit. So um, I, I agree with Mark. Uh, we we have some opportunities and and I um, am looking forward to um, being able to report back on all of our findings. Because <laughs> I think there could, be a whole, there could be a whole range of, of, of things uh, Besides just expenses, but uh, you know, length of stay, uh, coding metrics. Um, oh yes, we're gonna. I'm gonna report next on a few of those. But we got you know that. Keep thinking. That's a great list, and and I I know I have uh, some, and Mark and James, and we've been just starting our conversations about these things. Probably some supply chain issues and. Dozens more. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I uh, let me add. I, I, I commend you for at least I know I, I was pretty strong last month and uh, about the impact of COVID. But I mean, what I said was the easy stuff. The hard part is figuring out how it impacts you. I just know it'll impact you or impact us. That I know. How? I have frankly no idea. But that's why you guys get paid <laughs> the dollars to figure that out. Uh, you're the executive team. Um, but as, um, you know, as, as guiding you, um, you know, you have to look at how am I making my, you know, how am I making the, inter, the, 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 the organization more productive? How am I, you know, better utilizing the limited resources we have? I mean, th th to me, those are always in my businesses have been my guiding lights uh, and trying to strive. And, and it doesn't mean you're going to get them right. Perhaps I can share a story. Um, when <clears throat> the shelter in place went in last March um, on a Tuesday, um, my CFO and I do a lot of the accounting. Uh, my CFO and I, we, we had a revised budget on the following Monday. Wow. <laughs> well, because it was important. Yes. And I can tell you, we were wrong on almost everything. But we we felt we had to understand or at least be, and I don't want to say the right word is conservative, but our point was to try to look at things as best we can. And we and we visited it every two weeks. I mean, sometimes we were meeting once a week, my executive team, and that was, I mean, that just burnt people out. But so we went back to two weeks and now we're back to about a monthly stuff. But, um, but, but we were, but, but it's okay that we're wrong. I mean, that wasn't the exercise. The point of the exercise was to look how it's impacting us every day or every week. And I think that's the lesson. At least for us, it was. Yeah, with with COVID, there was a lot going on in this organization. And, uh, you know, we did, there was a lot of discussion, you know, how are we going to do this or that? And what was the cost? I mean, it, it was, I mean, it's amazing to me when I look back, like just uh, standing up telehealth. I mean, they did that in just a matter of days, it seemed like. I mean, <laughs> and, you know, estimating the costs and the labor, the hours, how we were going to get it done, how many licenses. I mean, there's, there's just, that's just one example of many. But I appreciate those comments very much. And, um, you know, in regard to our uh, volumes and budgeting, we did do sensitivity analysis before we made the decision not to guess. So... You know, I whether would we make the same decision today? I have no idea. 
So is our folks pretty comfortable with this? Is this what we want to move forward with uh, as far as budget goals and guiding principles? Not hearing any objections. Okay. Do we need to take a formal vote? I don't know that I'll, 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 I'll uh, push that over to Mike's corner. Well, this is not an action item. This is an item for discussion. Thank you. I think as far as guiding principles are concerned, you've listened to our input, taken feedback, and come with goals. So I think it sounds like our committee is in agreement that these goals are sufficient. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all. All right, so that means that up next is C2, strategic initiative updates. Yes, and so just to, just I'll share my screen again here, but just to kind of ground everybody, um, these were the initiatives that came out of our FY21 budgeting. Can everybody see it now? Uh, So So what I'm going to report on are the performance improvement items that were built in the final approved budget, which again didn't get approved until September. So we were very late last year in getting a budget over the finish line. And uh Tonight, I'm going to give you the progress on how we're doing on those initiatives. So there's a legend here that we adopted that if it's blue, it's complete, green's on track, yellow, we're watching it, and red means it's not going to happen or we're off track. So the first items here are the, uh, uh, are the buyout of some legacy software contracts. So um, Mark Amy is our leader there. We, uh, we went and talked to all of our legacy vendors and we figured out if there was a way we could save money and buy out contracts early. And uh, we were able to come up with 1.8 million. It was built in the budget and we achieved it, it's done. The second one there is uh, discretionary time off. This is, we mentioned this earlier today. Uh, basically, if you are non-represented and you're a director of above, we took away your ability to cash out any PTO, any future PTO, and we've eliminated your accrual. So we are no longer um, recognizing an expense for your PTO. That was worth 1.2 million and that is built in the budget and it's done and it's happening. The third item is a, was like as a consulting initiative. Um, we wanted to um, reduce our expenses. So what we came up with there was to delay the hiring of two UCSF doctors and also um, reduce general consulting costs. And we've done that. Um, we are running better than budget. So we're green there. The acute length of stay, um, this, is, uh, this is one that, uh, 
with EPIC and not having reporting. I mean, we were, this was a struggle to, to get around, but we got commitment from the organization to cut out 465 days out of our of opportunity days. Those are days where you wouldn't expect that a patient would have to stay in house. Now, granted, there's sometimes are reasons they have to stay in house, but we were gonna improve our throughput and get folks to the right level of care. Doing so, I wanna mention, does improve our quality and our patient experience because people that aren't really sick don't necessarily need to be in the hospital. So I just wanna, wanna make sure that I, uh, I uh, speak uh, um, specifically to those points. So we actually have accomplished this. So we are green. The next one is anesthesia charges. We probably could have made this one blue. Um, basically, the anesthesiologists uh, became um, East Bay Medical Group em uh, employed. So therefore, we started billing. So we had to set up the whole system to bill for these doctors. We've done that. We're doing it. Whether it's green or blue, it's happening, and we're on track. The next two are volume items. Um, both of those are red, and that is being driven by the pandemic and shelter in place. So although we did bring on these positions and we expected to increase our visits, um, you know, we saw a big decrease in our volumes. We talked about that. We're about 12% below um, our pre-COVID budget. And so we are not hitting either one of these initiatives. Payer contracting we've got as yellow because we're still in negotiation. The total amount we built in, it says uh, 18 million, but I think it's actually 22.1 that we that was actually built in that patient service revenue. Um, and we, I think we'll make it. I don't know if we'll get it done exactly by June, but maybe July, August, but I do think that we will achieve that. Um, we did attempt to eliminate a lot of the vacancies. So if you think back to the, the graph I showed you, trending FTEs budget and actual, there was that big space. We really wanted to eliminate that because that's building in a bunch of costs that you don't really think are going to be there. So um, what we did is we pulled out 27.7 FTEs uh, and another 7.7 .7 we put in a labor pool and so I'll speak to that first. It's green because we haven't pulled anybody out of that labor pool. So we've those 7.7 .7 were never realized. The 27.7, we've actually not used those FTEs either, even with the COVID leave, right? We're still positive. So our year-to-date FTEs are 4,591. Um, our total budget FTEs are 4,621. So we're actually favorable if you look at it from this perspective. We've put this as yellow because the cost for all of the registry is really high. And so we have paid out a lot more than what we would have paid um, our, our uh, regular staff. In regard to overtime, there we're kind of in the middle. We were at 4.6, we budgeted 3.2. Um, and we're at 4.2, so we have a slight improvement. So we've we've basically made that red. QIP, uh, QIP. This is one of those supplemental programs 
And this one, um, it's reporting on a whole bunch of metrics. And we have to build those metrics out in Epic to measure them. And then we also have to achieve them. So what was done last year in the budget is that we agreed to spend 1.6 million on additional staff. The hiring has started. It's been a little delayed because we the budget took so long to be approved. But once it was approved, we hired these people and we're working on it. But we have not yet increased the accrual. The revenue accrual is still at 35.8. We thought we could add another 15 million of QIP revenue if we got the support necessary for the reporting and to ensure that we achieve the metrics. So this is something that's yellow because we're watching it. We have to do effort to make sure that you know we can um, actually report and bring down additional funds. The next one is John George. And John George is, um, uh, there's kind of two ways to look at it. Uh, they eventually come together, but um, we know that we have a lot of denied days. And we've been working on that and we have improved it. And that's why you see this as green. You can see the denial rate was 18.5, now it's 11.9. That doesn't necessarily bring in additional revenue because the majority of the patients come from the county and we have a contract max. And so we can't draw down any more than that max. Um, and we've been achieving the max. Some of it has been via settlements, but we've been able to get the max contract amount. But if we are able to backfill with another paying provider, then we could actually improve our revenue. Um, so it's kind of twofold here, but the good news is this is a focus. We did not build out John George in the Epic installation last year. So we are working on that now. We, uh, the providers are now charting in Epic, but we still haven't built reports. So we, we've got work to do, but the good news is that folks have been focusing and we really are seeing an approval in our denial rate. And those were the items that we um, agreed to track. This was what was in the approved budget. Uh, I just put it in there for your information only. And there's some other slides if you want to look at that just have you know, additional numbers uh, on how the calculations are made. But we wanted to try to keep the uh, presentation manageable. Any questions on those? We love manageable presentations. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the next item on our agenda uh, section D is our action items. We have one contract. Yes, and that would be me, Trustee Esteen. Thank you so much. What I'd like to do is, on behalf of our lab, just introduce this um, contract. I know Dr. Ng is online, our medical director for the lab, as well as um, Ira Holly. And I'm going to turn it over to Ira, Ira soon, um, our contract specialist who really worked on this. But before I do, I'd be remiss to just mention a couple things about this contract. Um, five years ago, it was more of a Highland contract. And to Dr. Ng and her staff's credit, this contract now represents more of a system contract and the standardization of equipment and um, processes and best practices over the system instead of just Highland. So 
this covers a broader area than the contract that was in place before. Um, it's a seven-year contract, 12, 12 um, uh, let's see, about $12.5 million total, $1.7 million per year. And as Dr. Ng described to me, she said, Mark, this is the backbone of our laboratory. It covers 16 analyzers, one robotic track, what they call it. It covers all the supplies, the tubes, the reagents, everything that's needed to run a, a high-quality lab with the volume they produce, frankly. Um, so I, I'm glad to bring this forward on behalf. I'm going to take a moment to introduce Ira, though, in case any of you have technical questions about um, this contract and or any clinical questions, Dr. Ng is also here to be able to respond. So, Ira, I will turn it over to you. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Um, I think, as always, you've done an excellent job in summarizing the key elements of this contract, including the past history. Though one thing I might draw some attention to on an operational level is that we are um, successful in this proposal in carrying forward the financial terms of the current agreement, and I think that is important because we were able to leverage our GPO membership to get the best available pricing under the current agreement, and we have gotten Abbott's agreement to continue and carry that over under the proposed renewal. One of the results of that will be a 0% increase over the cost on a rate basis on the new agreement. And we were also able to get a calculation from Fei-Sei Chow, who is the manager of our clinical laboratory, that would show that um, based on our run rate and historical utilization, as well as projected use, that by the second year, I believe, of this proposed renewal, we will hit a volume that will trigger a new tier that will have a commensurately lower rate as a result, anticipated savings over the course of this agreement will be about $45,000. So any more questions we can um, help with? I have a question. I noticed that uh, the labs, as they currently operate, uh, at least through this contract, service Highland, San Leandro, Alameda, Fairmont, John George, and clinics, which is quite a scope. Does it not, do our labs not also service the SNFs? Are they outsourcing? Dr. Ring, would you like to comment on that? Your, we, service, we service everything. The SNFs, John George, Park Ridge, Fairmont, South Shore, mm -hmm. Alameda, Subacute, and of the other, and the clinics that were not mentioned by name, we service Eastmont, Hayward, and Newark. Okay. You're on mute, Trustee Files. Go ahead. This is a very long contract. Um, you know, I looked at the summary of the other contracts, and they're all, all maybe 36 months or maybe four years at the most. And this is a seven year contract. And I don't see that that the termination is only for cause, um, but seven years is a long time. And if, is, if over the course of that time, Abbott's position in the marketplace changed and uh, we felt perhaps we felt we weren't getting the kind of pricing that we should get, are there any reopeners or any opportunity for us to, to, to change any of the significant aspects of this? Uh, without 
running up against, well, you have to wait till 2028. Ira, do you have to comment on that? Um, I'd like to um, take a stab at that, yes. Um, I believe that although the summary indicates um, a termination for cause, that there is also a without cause termination. Um, however, if we did that, it, to be fair, would trigger some provisions where we may have to pay for a pricing commitment for purchase of the consumables. Um, I think my understanding, but I will defer to Faye and Dr. Ng, is that one of the main reasons we felt comfortable engaging in this long of a term agreement is because of the lifespan of the equipment that we've purchased, which is actually made by Abbott, the same provider of the servicing agreement. As I understand it, we really need to have Abbott's expertise, so there really isn't an alternative in the market for the kind of service that we need from them. And because because of the anticipated lifetime or life cycle of these pieces of equipment, which are relatively new, the seven years, although long for a contract on its face, is actually a commitment we would really need to make. And as I understand it, they are either the only game or the best game in town for us. But that said, I'm not an expert, and I do want to defer to Dr. Ng to confirm on this. You are correct, Ira. I want to say there are probably three major vendors this is the best one. I don't want to look at the other two. They have major interference with their analytical processes that will really negatively impact patient care. Lifespan of these instruments, the information systems, the three servers, in addition to the test reagents and supplies is really responsible for about 60% of our operations system-wide or about 1 million laboratory tests. Do we have a, a do we have a breakdown of how our costs uh, break down for service on the equipment as opposed to the reagents? And if we do, do we know our our annual maintenance expense? Roughly, what percentage of the cost of the equipment that is? I can give you some of that information right now. Um, the percentage of the total cost anticipated that will be allocable to the consumables is, I believe, around 75%. The remaining 25% is for maintenance repairs. Um, on a yearly basis, I think the maintenance is about, oh, no, the consumables are about 1.3 million. Um, I don't have the other numbers in front of me at this point in time, and I don't know the percentage of the cost of the equipment. I'd have to defer to Faye or to Dr. Ng on that if they know off the cuff. I don't know that. Well, I think that, that might be a good thing to know just because they, uh, Abbott kind of has us captive in terms of the maintenance. You know, a lot of times for a, a, a vendor of equipment like this, uh, a big part of their profitability is on the maintenance rather than on the equipment itself. And, you know, my experience, which is not recent, is that if you're in the, you know, maybe 10 to 15% per year ratio of maintenance to the cost of the equipment, you're in the ballpark. But if you're getting up to 25 or 30% of the cost of the equipment per year for maintenance, that's getting high. For uh, Trustee Fox, it says face a child. I do have that breakdown. I just need to pull it up just really quickly. While she's pulling it up, I just want to comment. Changing systems is a really big deal. 
we moved to the Abbott system, I lost a year, 2015. I cannot remember that year because that was switch over to new equipment for the new hospital. It's a memory lapse much as 2020 was that I can't remember because of COVID, but it's living at the hospital, living and breathing multiple people, getting the new instruments up. I understand that. I'm not suggesting that we switch equipment providers at all. I know what that would entail. I'm just suggesting that we are getting a good deal since we're going to be locked in for such a long time. Sure. Um, so, Trustee Fox, the equipment service per an annual basis is um, about eighteen, about thirty-five thousand dollars a year. And the amount for the consumables and reagents comes out to be about $1.3 million a year. $35,000 a year for maintenance does not sound sounds very inexpensive to me. I mean, I don't know the details of what, what might be covered and not covered, but... Um, that's fine. If you feel like you're getting a good price on the consumables and reagents, I, I think 35000 for maintenance is, seems it's more very fair on equipment that probably runs into the millions. Yeah. Have there been any equipment issues that we've needed to have uh, severe maintenance and replacement or do we feel like we're within the operating life of the equipment that Abbott has provided? Definitely within the operating life. Um, we've had, as you know, a long-term relationship with Abbott and that is probably one of the biggest selling points. They are always there. They're always available. We must be a 24 seven operation and they have maintained that. So it's that trust in that company that has led to us being loyal to them. Do you think that at $35,000 a year, uh, we should be replacing any of the equipment anytime soon? Or are we having failures at any facilities? So the six devices at Highland, including the track and the service and all that system, were new in 2016, so they're only five years old. The two new architects at San Leandro we implemented last year. They have another six years minimum lifespan. Two architects and the two rubies at at Alameda, we implemented about three or four years ago. They have a, a pretty long lifespan ahead of them. So I think they're like late 20s, early middle age adults, and we've got a lot more life in them. Right. And just to provide a frame of reference for the lifetime of analyzers, um, the ones at San Leandro Hospital that we actually inherited for Sutter that we just recently replaced, they were 15 years old. Um, and we are actually still using some hematology analyzers over at San Leandro that are actually now 16 years old and they've been pretty reliable. Trustees, it may be um, useful and um, Dr. Ng, help me if this is something that we can do, but if we go time and materials, if we don't engage in the PM contracts that we're contemplating now, Often one instance of going time and materials 
is far in excess of what we would pay for this this agreement um, because of the complexity of these machines. And so, you know, it's really kind of an actuarial decision. And it may be that we can retrospectively look at some of the work that we've had under our PM agreements and compare that to what we would have paid had we not had the PM agreements. And I think that might help um, validate the, the fees that are being discussed here. Dr. Ng, can you um, speak to that perhaps? Um, well, I, I try to stay out of the finance. <laughs> if if Bay is correct that we're only paying 35000 a year, and I swear to God that um, our service rep seems to live at AHS at each of the different facilities. I, I would think we're getting a great deal, and these appear to be very reliable. I, I think that number is extraordinarily low, so uh, I certainly don't have a problem with that, with the 35000 a year. The one thing that I'm noticing, and, and we can try to take a, a vote if we don't have any other questions, is that the lead time to approve this contract, uh, the contract would begin on April 1st. And I'm taking that to mean that the previous contract is ending, though it doesn't, uh, yeah, ending. Uh, I don't think it's actually in here. It doesn't say when it's ending. So, I just want to make sure that as we move through, for process sake, contract approval, that we have enough time to get extra information if necessary. You know, if we needed to kick this down to the next meeting, to the next month, to the, the full board meeting or something like that, that we just have enough lead time so that we can make a decision that is informed. Um, and so just noting that 30 days in advance or 28 days in advance might not give us adequate timeline, which increases the pressure uh, for a hasty decision uh, regarding, you know, multi-million dollar contracts and the operations of the facility, the system, the whole health. Madam Chair, <laughs> I do have to make a correction and for that I will profusely apologize. Um, so the 30,000 that I quoted was actually a monthly price. It's not an annual price. Thank you for that. which is still pretty reasonable considering the 16 pieces of equipment in the automation track. That, that, that makes more sense to me. I don't know what the equipment is, is priced at, but I would say we're looking at many millions of dollars worth of equipment. Yes. yes. Right. Are there any further questions uh, from trustees or members of the audience? Uh, does anybody want to make a motion? I'll make the motion to approve the recommendation to the full board. I second. Just to clarify, recommendation to this committee for a vote tonight or to move the decision to the full board? Only the board can approve it. So all we can do is make a recommendation to the full board to approve it. That's all we can do. All right. All right. Uh, can we take a roll call vote, Madam Chair or Madam? Clark? 
<laughs> Thank you. Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Splendorio. Yes. Motion passes. Thank you all very much. All right, we are getting there, team. We are now in the latter half of our agenda uh, policies, section E. Uh, and our CFO will lead us through this section again. So um, the, uh, the, this is the, we've come to finance committee a few times. We've went, gone to the board with these. They've uh, come up through MEC and uh, um, uh, what, QPC, QPS, QPC. Taft will have to help me on that. Uh, or Trustee Burkett, excuse me. Uh, yes, QPSC. They've been, they've come through QPSC and the MEC. So we can discuss them if you would all like. Um, I've got uh, Terry Manifesto, our VP of Finance, if you'd like a discussion. Um, we did include the changes in a PowerPoint that was uh, um, uploaded in your agenda materials. Plus, you've got both policies. Do you want to discuss them again? Or I, I don't know if everybody has been part of discussions that in this group, but we're happy to go through it and discuss it if you want, or if you guys are comfortable um, approving them without discussion, then that whatever you would like. We're comfortable. Comfortable with. Is that a motion to approve them? Uh, I'll move to approve the uh, charity care policy. Do we have a second? I'll second. All right, maybe take a roll call vote. Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Splendoria. Are you there, Trustee Splendoria? I think we lost him. Oh, no, he's there, off screen. Well, the motion can pass with three votes. Right, maybe we should consider that an abstention. Okay, thank you. So then there's a, a second policy there. Um, do you want to discuss the second um, policy, or are you guys comfortable with what we submitted to uh, to approve it? What would you like? Again, this policy also went through all of the committees and it's been to the finance committee and the board twice this year. <laughs> I move approval. Second. All right. Can we take a roll call vote? Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. And Trustee Splendorio. I don't know if he's back. No, I'll mark him as an abstention again. All right. Thank you for that. The final 
section of our agenda is the review of the supplemental packet that we discussed earlier. Uh, that is for everyone to read at their leisure and enjoy. Uh, we kind of went over it earlier, but there's much more detail if you look into your packet in section F1. So now the final portion of our agenda is discussion, committee planning, issues, and tracking. Uh, there were some topics that came up tonight that I do want to make sure we are tracking. Um, and if any of the committee members have items they'd like to see tracked, please speak now. You may state some of the things that are all already on my list. All right, hearing none, the items that I think are going to be important for us to keep track of uh, are the 340B, which I think we're very close to, <laughs> to getting a final approval on, um, as we heard from Terry Manifesto. So that's probably going to be a positive ending note next month. Um, I'd like to make sure we're paying attention to our government funds director uh, process for either a replacement hire or whatever the process is going to be. We just want to stay informed. Um, the I think it's going to be obvious, but the contract renegotiations of unsigned payers, we've tracked that. I mean, just tonight it was listed in multiple places. So I imagine that's going to follow um, our debt management policies and how aggressive we are in recouping funds from payers. Of course, in line with our policies that we just approved, we will not be moving outside of our principles, uh, we will be looking for whatever the contract renegotiations dictate so that we can get the maximum dollars as we serve our clients. Um, yeah, I think those are the top items. And if anyone would like to make a motion to adjourn, I think we can call it a night. So moved. We'll have a second. Second. All right. Good night. We need a roll call Thank vote you. for that. Good night, everybody. Thank Good you night. so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Good night.